Well, if you have your Bible this morning, uh, we're going to be back in John chapter 2 today. You'll remember it's been a couple of weeks now. I was off for New Year's while the guys all preached, and uh, then last week we did our beginning of the 2021 message, so it's been several weeks ago. Uh, but uh, we started John chapter 2, and uh, we just with our brief time in there, we can see now what a, what a great chapter this is going to be. I, I told you when we started studying all of this that, you know, uh, when John writes, he writes five books, which actually make up the five wisdom books of the New Testament, just like there are five wisdom books of the Old Testament. And uh, they're incredible books. Each one of them, uh, written by John, who is a type of the Christian, really shows us in each book what a different aspect of our Christian life. And um, these books will be key uh, to putting your Bible together, not only for your own personal relationship with Christ, but just in understanding your Bible. John's gospel <coughs> will be filled with material uh, that will help us put it all together. And you'll see as it unfolds as we come through here, just an incredible amount of material in the gospel of John. And as I told you last time we were together, if you remember, I basically said it'll take three things in your life, which I call the basics, uh, to really make your life everything that God wants it to be uh, as a Christian. And all three of these are built around the one key word for Christianity, which it's lost today, and unfortunately most people, God's people have lost it, and that is the word discipline. I cannot tell you how important it is to build that aspect uh, in your life as a Christian. And in those three areas, the first thing that you'll build discipline in your life to always establish the context of any part of the Bible. We talked about this the last time we were together in John 2. And we've talked about it on Thursday night. I, I take every opportunity to keep that before you. And I know, I know that doesn't sound like much, or like it's a big deal, but it just amazes me how a little people will do this and, or not do it. And just, I mean, no matter how many times you say it, for whatever reason, people will just jump into the Bible and throw that, that valuable piece of, of information out and, and never discipline themselves to that. My main goal in giving you the Bible uh, will be this aspect, and I just stay on it all the time. Sooner or later, somebody will, will follow it. You know, you'll see on every question that you ask on Thursday night, I, mean, I make a, an open public forum about it, you know, uh, or any issue that you have. When I preach on Sunday morning or teach, you know, in people ministry or even a Bible institute, you know, I hammer this home. Context will always be truth. And if you don't have the right context, you're not going to have truth. I mean, it's just that simple. And, uh, you know, over and over again, you know, I take every opportunity to do this. You know, if you want to make it a large-scale concept, the job of a, any pastor, any pastor, is to always establish context. You know, and we always talk about it in the, in the line of learning your Bible, but I'm telling you, it's true in everything uh, in your life. You know, putting life into a proper context. You're going to come to the place where, you know, you, you're going to have issues. You're going to have personal issues. You're going to have family issues. Uh, there's going to be issues with other people in relationships. And the key to solving that, and remember now, 
The number one goal in the Bible is restoration. That was the goal of God's salvation, to restore you to him. And we as God's people are under that same mandate as far as relationships. And I'm telling you, context just doesn't go along with figuring out your Bible. When you have issues, no matter what it may be, when I preach, when I teach, or whatever, the first thing we have to do is establish a context. What is the real issue here? And only then, once the context has been laid out, can you proceed from there to try to to work the thing out. It's when people don't want to put it into a context that you, you, you just can't solve the problems. Because without a doubt, the lack of discipline in determining the context of any book, chapter, verse, or as I said, anything in life. I think I said this to you Thursday night. The failure to, and the lack of discipline to establish a context in anything will be the end of Bible truth and the beginning of all heresy. Every heresy starts. Every problem continues to exist without somebody getting the right context, getting the facts and establishing a context based on what is true. And then you work from there. You never, never, never move past a verse, a chapter, a book without first establishing the context of what's being said. And and that's, that's, I get it. It's really hard today. You know, I've been around for a while now and I've watched how generations of young people have changed and the generations of, of um, you know, even adults in time. And you kids, you have, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. When I grew up, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have computers. My claim to fame is when the first calculator came out. And, uh, you know, it was about that big. You had to carry it on the back of a mule to get to use it. But, but, but it's all changed now. And the generation that you're part of, you don't talk anymore. You don't communicate. You, you, you talk through a keyboard. You talk through a, a device. And you do it by typing words in. And you know what? And, and words are fine, but words lack context. Words lack the emotion behind what you're saying. And people don't speak today. They don't. I mean, uh, it's a thing where uh, the kids are so consumed with video games and playing this and playing that that, you know, parents have, 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 have realized, and wrongly so, that that's a way to, to keep your kids interested so they're not a problem. Just give them something to do on a video game or this or that or something that they're doing and you know, that keeps you from have to keeps you from have to parenting them. And that's that's where it all leads. And we live in a generation of young people today that, you know, I, I you know, people all the I, I say somebody said, Well, I sent so and so say so a text. Call them. Well, they don't answer their phone, they just answer texts. Well, there's the problem right there. You know what? Why should I text somebody and wait for two days for an answer? when I can call you right now and either you're going to talk to me or you're going to hang up. I mean, I get my answer. But that's where we're at today. The information age is not necessarily a good thing. And, uh, you know, we get words, but we get no spirit of the words. We get no context of the words. Now, the second imperative will be key words. And uh, you want to discipline yourself to learn them. You saw not only last week, but you saw from Thursday night and everything that we do, how the key words are absolutely vital. We've been talking about the day of the Lord and the day of Christ. 
two different phrases that will set a completely different format for you to study your Bible. And again, I, you know, I, I point it out all the time. There's probably key 20, 20 or so key words that if you just get those down and you discipline yourself in two ways. You discipline yourself, first of all, to learn them. And then you have to discipline yourself to use them. And uh, it's just that simple because they will be the key to unlocking the context of anything. And uh, your learning then, uh, you know, will be of no value if you don't learn how to use them. And, and that speaks to another issue that we have today that you see all the time in Christianity. It's people who are lazy. We live in a lackadaisical society today where it comes to the Word of God anyhow, where everybody's lazy. We're just plain lazy when it comes to doing the work of really getting into the Word of God. We all want the fast track. We all want something right now. And that may work with your cheeseburger going through McDonald's or whatever, but it won't work when it comes to the Bible. You have to do the work on it. It's a lot like my GPS. You know, instead of finding out where, you know, I'm supposed to go, we just dial it into the GPS. There again, a device, and it tells us how to get there. But you know what? I don't, you're probably the same way. I can put it into the GPS and it tells me how to go there and I'm following it, but inside my mind, I think I know a better way to get there than the GPS. And I usually wind up lost. But we've come to the place in all of these areas where we have lost us. And the third one will be, you know, understanding the Bible, God's time frame of, of actually these two days, the day of the Lord and the day of Christ. We know the day of Christ, the rapture, the day of the Lord's the second coming, which is the theme of the Bible. It all built around the times and the seasons. And so in, in any period of church history, and this is what God intended for us, in any period of church history, no matter where, who lived when, that Christian could see and understand how these two days will play out in his life. So those two days, First Thessalonians chapter 5, won't overtake him. That he understands where he is at and better understanding of what he is to do in his ministry based on the urgency based on where he's at in relationship to those two days. You know, every child of God, to do his work right, should know approximately where he's at in relationship to Christ's coming, especially today in 2020. And God's people are just oblivious to it. Uh, we do this by understanding the times and the seasons. We've talked a lot lately about the book of Colossians, and I got a feeling we're going to be dealing a lot with it in, 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 as we move on through this year. And I've told you before that the book of Colossians is really an incredible book. In fact, it defines for us, when you read in Revelation chapter 3 where it talks about the Laodicean church, justice of the people, the church of the closed door, you get some details there, but if you really want the context of that period of church history, which is the one we're living in, you've got to go to the definitive book on it, and that will be the book of Colossians. And it shows us the indifference in Christianity today. And I've told you before, chapter 1 and chapter 2 tells you what happened and why it happened and what you're up against. And then we talked about this Thursday night. Chapter 3 and 4 tells you that how we respond to it. And somebody asked a question. It says there, set your affections on things above. And so I said that a couple of weeks ago, and I told you there was 12 in the Bible. Somebody asked that Thursday night, and I walked you through those 12. The book of Colossians, once you let it define for you our time period, 
and you know where you're at in relationship to all this, it, it tells us what we are to stand for, how we are to stand for the right things. And this will come by disciplining yourself to those three areas that I just talked about. Today, God's people are standing for all the wrong things. They have no idea where they're at in relationship to those two days. And, and the devil, he masks that. The devil is great. We know this from Job chapter 40 and chapter 41. He's great at putting up a smoke screen, masking the real issues by putting up issues that mean nothing, but everybody gets focused on them. I remember back in the 50s and the 60s, we just ended World War II, and, you know, the Russians came really out on top, and all of Europe began to fall under communism. Country by country by country fell under communist rule, and we saw it in South America, Central America, and it was like they were taking over the whole world. And for Americans at that time, hey, I was a kid then. I was born in 1950. So, you know, and I was 10 years old in, in 1960 when all this was going on. Most of you have no idea the Cuban Missile Crisis. I lived through it. I remember like it was yesterday. It was parents' night at school where the parents go and meet with the teachers and tell them how good or how bad you're doing. And I remember my dad saying, we may be at war tomorrow. Now, I knew what was coming when I went to school. I was just as soon went to war that night because I knew I was not going to get a good report from the teacher. <laughs> but it didn't work out that way, and, uh, you know, I had to deal with those issues too. But I remember that time. <clears throat> I, I remember that in Luke, uh, Luke in, in Look Magazine and Life Magazine, in the 60s, everybody was building bomb shelters. We were scared to death that a nuclear war was going to break out because of the Cold War it was going to turn hot. And I remember that. I lived in Canton, Ohio. Canton, Ohio at that time was the number one steel-producing city in the world. You had Republic Steel, Timken Roller Bearing. I mean, it was loaded with steel group. And on the Russians' target, it was number two. Now, how do you think a little 10-year-old kid dealt with life. You wonder why I am the way I am? I went to bed every night thinking a whoosh, blam, blam was going to blow up Canton, Ohio and kill all the steel people. And, I, you know, and they, they, everybody was building bomb shelters. Look and Life magazine came out and said, if you make $200,000 a year, build this bomb shelter, you got a 99% of surviving. If you make $50,000 a year or $100,000 a year. You build this bomb shelter and you got a 50-50 chance. If you make under $20,000 a year, which my parents did, you were told to go to the southwest corner of your basement. Well, I knew where that southwest corner of my basement was. I was scared to death. But it was the wrong thing to be scared of. The communism wasn't the problem in the 50s or the 60s. It was the smokescreen. Smokescreen. When we got into the 70s, we got into all of the social issues. And we got into the abortion issues and legalism and all of those things. You know, we talked Thursday night about conspiracies and all that. And I know that, you know, I don't worry about those things because when you've been around for a long time, you see history repeating itself. 
Back in the 70s, there was a young man, and maybe some of you, probably maybe you older guys would, but you ever remembered a guy by the name of Johnny Todd? John Todd was a young man who became very prominent in Baptist circles. And he claimed that he was part of a conspiracy organization that was going to overthrow. This was when President Carter was president. And that, that, uh, that he knew who the Antichrist was. He was naming all of these high people who were connected with Satan and satanic things and talking about it. And, and I cannot tell you. I cannot tell you the Baptist churches across this country that believed him. I mean, they were buying guns. They were buying ammunition. They were stocking up on food. He made thousands and thousands of dollars going from church to church to church to church, and these guys bought into it. They were incredibly fooled by this guy, and they, they just were, I mean, it was, they were having whole conferences, how to survive the coming apocalypse. And then it was found out that he was a phony and a fake. Then we found out that he had nothing to do with Christianity, wasn't even saved. In fact, the way they found him out was, a, uh, was they found a tape that he was, he was lecturing a covenant of witches. That shows you how stupid Baptist preachers are, were, still am today. If you got on Dr. Ruckman's website, I'm sure you could go back. He did a tape on it called The Wanderings of Johnny Todd. He exposed him way back when everybody else was believing him. You know why? Because he understood history. He understood context. He understood that the devil will throw up a smoke screen to get everybody looking the wrong way. The way he's always operated. Who didn't know that from Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41? Uh, and today it's the political world around us. I mean, I told you Thursday night, the guys who were really solid preachers back in when I was growing up, and some of them were my friends. I know them. And they're really great preachers. We have some of their books in my, our bookstore. And now they've come to the place where they're all political. Instead of holding revivals, they're holding revivals that are political rallies. And they're telling everybody, you know, what to do. And I'm telling you, it's, it's just, you know, you know, I... I'm not the smartest guy in the world. Shut up. Because if I was, I wouldn't let Dale in this church. Thank you, Dale. I appreciate that, Bosey. But... Do you realize that in the Old Testament, and I'm just, these are things you, you got to see. They will keep you in the right context. Do you realize that in Israel, in the Old Testament, that no king of Israel, which was political, ever came from the tribe of Levi? And no priest that was spiritual? Never came from the political kingly line of Judah. I mean, other than Christ and David, and that's for a specific reason. 
There were two separate lines. No king ever come from Levi, and no priest ever came from Judah. In the Bible, there's a clear, divided line. Now, how come I can see that and somebody else can't? Context. Understanding that the issues that are presented before you across the world, country, are most generally never the real issues. I told you that, you know, Thursday night that back in the 70s, Jerry Falwell, who's dead now, Jerry Falwell started what was called, and he started in Lynchburg, Virginia, and started in back in the 50s and the 60s. He had a really good, strong Bible-believing church. And then toward the end of the 60s into the 70s, he got the political motivation behind him, and he started what was called as the moral majority, which was a movement for Christians to become the moral majority in our country. And he ceased from preaching the Bible. And every message he preached from that point on was a political message. And Baptist preachers across this country denounced that. We're all over him. Hey, I've been in Bible conferences where they just ripped him apart at that particular point in time. Now those same guys are doing the same thing. History always repeats itself. Back in the 60s and the uh, 50s and the 60s, the Cold War was, was with Russia. Now the new Russia is China. And now we're faced with our own worldwide pandemic. And God's people have lost the context of the two most important days in the Bible that dictates where we go and what we do and how we do it. The fear, I said this last week, the fear of our day has blinded us to the fear of God's day. I showed you Thursday night out of Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12, uh, how God defines a conspiracy. And he said, don't be afraid of who was out there, whatever they're saying. Uh, you let me be your fear. You fear me. Don't, don't fear him who's able to destroy the body. You fear him who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. <laughs> That's what he said. God's people today, they have no fear of God. They fear everything else. They fear getting a virus. They fear this. They fear the government. They fear what's going to happen. They fear what's going to happen on Wednesday when Biden gets put into office. They fear, well, about this, they felt that. And they have lost completely the context, not only of their life, but the context of what's going on around them. We have lost, as God's people, the most three Precious, valuable assets that any child of God could or should have. We have lost our perspective. We've lost our position. And when you lose your perspective and your position, you're going to lose your purpose. And now instead of running around fearing God against the day that we're all going to stand to, we're all running around fearing the government and what's going to happen or what we think is going to happen and what probably is going to happen and we fear the things that we really don't need to fear and lose our perspective and our purpose and our position to fear the things that we should fear. And we come away as God's people today, spiritually speaking, no context to our life, no reason for it, no purpose for it. We've lost our position. You know, it's always a sad thing to any pastor, and I, and I talk with them weekly. I had... You know, well, I don't know, 20 phone calls this week with guys that are on the 
website who follow us, who are pastors. And, you know, and they, they call. And sometimes I have sessions with three or four of them, you know, and they, they want to talk through things and they want to find out what we're doing and, and, and let them know what they're doing. And, 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 you know, and, and I, I talk with them all the time. And I, <clears throat> they all feel the same way. When you lose somebody from your church <clears throat> during a crisis or some issue comes up or whatever, they always feel bad about that. And I understand that. <clears throat> and I do, too. And, and I tell them, I told a couple of them this week, I said, you know what, here's the bottom line. When you know you're up against these two days and you understand where you're at in relationship to them and you also understand the urgency of the hour and what watch you're on, Mark chapter 13, we went through that a couple of times this week with some of them, at what time of the day it is and the question of Matthew chapter 20, was you on the job during that time? And, and you, you, you try to hold the line with your church in these last days. And I get it. It's very tumultuous days. People are all over the page. I get it. And it's a fear-driven Christianity today in these last days. And I told this guy, I said, you know what? And you try to build men and women, you try to build families, they hold the line with you. But I said, the thing you're missing or you don't get or maybe you don't understand is you don't realize that you're in a warfare. I mean, if we don't sing onward Christian soldiers anymore in churches and the choir. They got all of this worldly stuff now. And the reason why you can't find a good choir to sing onward Christian soldiers is you got too many conscientious objectors in the choir. That Bible says that we're to endure a hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. That we're to war a good warfare. And a history of, I was going to say modern day warfare, but any warfare. When a a general or a captain or whoever is a combat leader and he leads, he trains his people hard, he trains them long, he trains them with discipline, because he knows that that will probably be the only thing that'll keep them alive when the bullets start flying. Discipline in training. How many times we were told, when you get into the mix, remember your training. Remember what we taught you. But in spite of that, I tell this guy, in spite of that, you're going to lose some. It's the reality of warfare. It's it's, it's stupid little issues will come in. Somebody will get an attitude, and that attitude will... Sp- and it's a thing where people lose their purpose. They lose their perspective. They lose the context of why God saved you in the first place. Now, you're a young church. We got some old ones like me and John and brother back here and... Upstairs, we got a few oldies, but goodies. Uh, and I want to tell, I, I, you guys know this, but I'm going to tell you, the real danger of becoming an older Christian, you, you don't see it in you guys, and I like that, because you guys got another good 20, 25 years where you got to start worrying about this. But the older you get when you've been in Christianity for 20, 30, 40 years, you know the thing we all got to worry about? Losing your edge. 
You've been in it so long. I, I saw it in the military. You get a guy that's a 20-year man or a 30-year man, and he's got 18 years in, and he's only got two years to go that he can retire with full benefits. You know what he does? He starts to coast. He's no longer a real soldier. He takes it easy. In his mind, he's done his 18 or 19 years, 17 years, so he thinks it's justified for him to coast up to his retirement. And, and God's people get the same way. They'll be in this thing for 30, 40 years, and then you, you lose your edge. You don't have the drive anymore. You don't have the purpose anymore. <clears throat> you lost your perspective. <clears throat> and now <clears throat> you just coast. And I'll tell you what, that may work in the U.S. Army. It may work in the Air Force. It may work in the Navy. It may work in the Marine Corps, but it'll never work in Christianity. Because Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 8 tells us that in this war, there is no discharge. You don't get the coast. In fact, the older you get, the better you ought to become. The older you get, the more experience you ought to be getting under your belt to help the young ones. But instead, instead of turning it inward and then turning it outward, we just don't do anything with it, and then we get bad attitudes. <clears throat> and we, we, we don't want to feel uncomfortable. And then you young guys, I'm going to tell you something. <clears throat> you young guys and gals, <clears throat> you take a Christian that's it's been at it for 30 or 40 years, and he's decided or she's decided they're going to coast, you're going to make them real nervous. And they're going to develop an attitude because they don't want you to show them up. And you guys are fire eaters. You guys won't stop at anything. <clears throat> I really believe that's why God built this church the way that he did. <clears throat> we may lose the oldies ones who, <clears throat> you know, that can't handle it. We've got some old ones that can handle it. But we may lose the ones who are cr cruising through their Christianity. But the thing that will keep this church on fire is every one of you young people and you older people who never let the fire go out. And that's where the difference lies. That's where the discipline comes in. And I'm telling you, I told this guy this week, hey, when God's people lose their perspective, when they lose their position and they lose their purpose, I agree with them. It's probably time to move on. I, I'm sure that you're a nice person. I'm sure you're a wonderful person. But you know what? Just as the military has a process by which they weed out non-combatants, so does God. And uh, not every child of God has a, has a place in a frontline combat unit. They used to say back in my day that they belonged in the rear with the gear. And I understand that. And it's one of those things. You know, up in Fort Leavenworth... <clears throat> Up there in Leavenworth, Kansas. You got what they call the General's College. More affectionately called the War College. And it's a college for staff officers, majors and up. And it's about command and control. <clears throat> I, I've known many of the guys that were teachers up there that taught military history. I've... I've sat under many of the guys from other countries that they came in and they, they talked about, you know, <clears throat> where what country they're with. And we bring them in, majors and up, from all around the world. And they train them there. And its sole purpose is to take the tactics of combat that have been 
established down, it's an amazing thing, established down through history. And they show the modern day commander exactly what I try to show you, that in warfare, if you want to have a great ongoing warfare, you have to look back in history. They teach combat tactics that go all the way back to the Roman Empire. Can you believe that? Over 2,500 years ago, the Roman Empire was the greatest fighting force on the world has ever seen. And some of the battle tactics that they used, some of the things that they did, are still studied today at Fort Leavenworth, putting into a modern-day concept. They taught it from all wars. They taught it from the Civil War, the lessons of World War I and World War II, the lessons of Vietnam and Korea. And they show that the tactics that worked back then are solid tactics that aren't just that aren't just back then that they're solid tactics that'll work today. And I want to tell you something in Christianity the tactics that worked back then will be the same tactics that'll work today. And they teach you that in any battle, in any war, you must have to win two key things in your favor. And I, I had a guy that taught military history. He was a good friend of mine. He's retired now. And we had talked many, many times. We were, were really good friends. In fact, a couple of them up there. And we spent a lot of time together. And, uh, and he, I would ask him questions. And he, would, he taught military history is what he taught. And he told me one time, he said, you know, to win any battle, you got to have two things in your favor. You got to have the high ground in other words, you must have the advantage of position. <clears throat> and you need to have fire discipline. You must control the firepower of whatever you're in command of. Whatever you have, whether it's big, little, or in the middle, you have to control it, and you always have to have the high ground. I, I, I thought that was astounding, a piece of advice to me, and boy, I immediately I could see that how it worked in Christianity. And he told me this story, which I, I actually researched it out. You know, there's two movies that you ought to buy and watch with your kids. And they're both about the Civil War. The first one is about, it's simply called Gods and Generals. The second one is simply called Gettysburg. And they are, without a doubt, if you want an understanding and insight into the Civil War of how a thing it's, they are incredible. And in Gods and Generals, in fact, Gettysburg came out first, and then they put out Gods and Generals. There was a third one that was going to come out, but they never did it because they flopped in the theater. Nobody wanted to see them. There wasn't any sex. There wasn't any, it was just, it was just, it was good, solid, documented history about events that shaped this country. Nobody cared. Gods and generals start you from the beginning of the Civil War when it all happened and brings you up to the Battle of Vicksburg. Gettysburg picks up after Vicksburg and the next battle there, major one was Gettysburg and, then, and focuses on that. And then the third one was going to bring it all the way through to the end, but they never did it. Boy, I wish they would have. But he told me, in the and, you know, and I've been places, all these places, and I wish I'd have known what I knew when I was there. 
Gettysburg has always been an incredible, fun place for me to go visit. I've been there several times. I preached a couple of times in Pennsylvania, not too far. And when I was off there in the day, the pastor took me over to Gettysburg, and I just, I just love places like that. But he told me in the Battle of Gettysburg, there was a place called Little Round Top. And there was a place called Big Round Top and Little Round Top. And they were high up. And they were in the Union positions. And obviously the Confederacy wanted to take and wipe the Union off and move right into Washington. And down on Little Round Top was the end of the Union line. It curved around and it was a steep hill coming up on all sides. And they put up a beat-up company of the 20th Maine who had about 50, 60, 70 guys under a guy's name. I think his name was Colonel Chamberlain. He later became the governor of of Maine. And he stretched his guys out across the top here and around the edge, and he was told that if he, at whatever cost, he had to hold that line of that end of the line, because if they didn't, they would sweep right up and sweep the whole uh, Union Army off. And so he held off a complete division of Confederate soldiers because he had the high ground. And they had to, in the middle, it was July 2nd and 3rd, it was terribly hot in Pennsylvania. And wave after wave after wave after wave of contenders tried to go up that uphill battle and they got pushed off every time. Why? He had the high ground. And he saved the Union line, got the Congressional Medal of Honor for it. And as I said, later he became uh, governor of Maine. But he kept that left flank from collapsing. And I, I, when he told me that story, I thought to myself, what an incredible, credible, credible concept of keeping and holding the high ground. You know, this is one of the main reasons we got beat in Vietnam. The first war America ever lost. We had to fight on his ground. We went into a ground that we had no clue on that he had fought for 15, 20 years when he kicked out the French. And the second reason is we had no fire discipline. Guys would get into a firefight and they would, they, would, they would flip their M16s over to full automatic and each guy carried about 300 rounds and he'd just spray everywhere and hit nothing and pretty soon they're all out of ammo. No discipline in firing. It's what happened in Afghanistan. You know, Afghanistan is called the graveyard of the nations. Do you know why it is? because there's never a nation been able to subdue them. You had the Russians go in with tanks, AK-47s, you know, Chomkhan 50s, all of the machine guns and things you could ever have. The Afghans are shooting flintlock rifles and old infield bolt-action rifles. And the Russians couldn't beat them. You know why? They never had the high ground. That's some of the most mountainous terrain you ever saw in your life. And when those Afghanis got in there, boy, you couldn't get them out. It's impossible ground to fight on. And for me, I, I, I always build people through the Word of God the same way. I will hold to those same two tactics uh, that work in warfare. And brother, you better believe and understand you are in a warfare. I will always, to the best of my ability, hold the high ground. Now in the Bible, that's the Tower of David. That's a high tower on the wall that we are supposed to be watchmen on. And you want to make every fight that the devil throws at you, every fight that comes your way, you want to keep the high ground, therefore making it an uphill battle that they can't get the advantage on you.
And you know what? I'll be honest with you. This is where 99% of God's people are defeated right here. God's people struggle with issue after issue after issue after issue all of their lives. It just goes from one bad decision to another. It goes from one mess to another mess. And they never get on top of their problems. You know why? Because they refuse to apply the Bible principles that will put them at the high ground. And all their life, they're fighting an uphill battle they can never win. Let me tell you something. Unless you put the Word of God in its principles, I mean, what is the point if you have the right Bible if you don't use it? It's the principles that give you the high ground, the, the high tower. And God's people just can't, they never hold the high ground. And then you have to have fire discipline. You have to know how to use your Bible. I mean, you have to know how to use your Bible. You ought to be able to take that Bible apart. I, I, think, back, uh, I think back in David's Mighty Men of Valor, back in 2 Samuel chapter 23, you had Eleazar who killed, I don't know, six, seven, eight hundred guys, man, with one guy with a sword, and he, when he was done fighting, his hand was so clenched to that sword, the muscles had wrapped itself around it that he couldn't drop the sword. He became one with the sword. You need to become one with that book. Now, you give me men and women, families, that uh, with a commitment to those two things and a courage to endure a hardness, and I'll, I'll hold the high ground till that day. Or as they say in war and battle, we will win the day. And for us, the day is the day of Jesus Christ. You know, in this old world today, we have, we have to fight three ongoing battles. The first one is the battle for your Bible. They want to take that from you. They want to, they want to disarm you. The second will be the battle for your mind. I mean, just having, in this, it's crazy. Just having the right Bible will not by itself help you. I've met a lot of God's people who have the right Bible, but when it comes to problems and issues and bad times and families and marriage issues and relationships, they won't do what it says and follow the principles. Having the right Bible only works if you discipline yourself to use it. Then the third one is the battle for your family. And to make me make no no bones about it. Your family's up for grabs today. Your family's up for grabs. I've seen over the years parents get mad over something, you know, and, 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 and in the long term, the devil plays them like a fine fiddle and they wind up losing their kids. I mean, he'll take your church from you first, then he'll take your Bible from you second, and then he'll take your family from you, your kids, in that order. So when you see how this thing all works, the key is going to be discipline. The key is going to be establishing your context. Now, I said all of that to kind of put a bridge from last week to this week, but I want to show you the importance of context in John chapter 2 today as we read these verses here. Let's read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and use what we've already talked about, establish the high ground, establish a discipline in those three things. Let's get our perspective, let's get our position, and let's get our purpose back. He said, On the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto, unto him, They have no wine. Jesus said unto her, Woman, what is, have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto his servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set 
there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three uh, firkins apiece. Jesus answered unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now and bear uh, unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. And, and when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he knew not from whence it was, but the servants withdrew the water new. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Now, Father, help us today to learn from this. Help us to get the right perspective about uh, everything in our life. Help us to establish the right context about everything, Lord, in the Bible, in our lives, and certainly uh, in this passage today. If there ever was a passage that needed a context, it's this one, uh, the way it's so wrongly taught today. And help us, Father, to get back our perspective, get back our, our, our position, and get back our purpose. We love you, we thank you, and we pray you'll lead and guide us into all truth. In Jesus' name, for a safe we ask it. Amen. Now, next week, we will get into um, and dive into this passage from a doctrinal application. And man, there are some things here. <clears throat> but today, given where we're at in the Laodicean church, given with everything we are faced in Christianity that we have just now talked about, and this is why I laid such a lengthy introduction on you, uh, I need to go through here and clarify some issues that are within the church of Laodicea today. And as I've said many times, when you lose the battle of your Bible, uh, then you will lose the battle of your mind. And you will do some of the craziest, stupidest stuff on this planet, and you'll find yourself right back with the world. And yet you'll be claiming that even though you're with the world, that you're really still in Christianity the way you should be. And of course, your, your family goes without, without saying. Now, we talked about the book of Colossians, our definitive book. And in the book of Colossians, we saw in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, very clearly, what four things came in and destroyed the body of Christ during the Laodicean church period. And along with that, we were told in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, once those things uh, we saw were going to happen, it told us in verse 6, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. No matter what's going on in the Laodicean church age, we are told to still walk in him. Now that means something. And I know to most people it means, well, it just means hand in hand, walking with us. No, no, walk in him. If he is the word of God, John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, then our walk in him has to be in his word. It didn't say walk with him. It said, walk in him. Now look at verse 7, or I'll read verse 7 to you. This is what we do here uh, for those of you who will allow it to be done in your life. Verse 7. Verse 6 says, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Verse 7. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as ye have been taught abounding therein with thanksgiving. Now, you have to get rooted and grounded up in him. How do you do that? By walking in him. And you'll notice that you have to get rooted, get your roots down in a church and a Bible before you can grow and be established. There has to be a process 
built up in him. And, uh, and, then, and when you get to that point, you're rooted and built up, you get established. It's just that simple. You know, most of you work with people, so you'll understand how this goes. And most of you have worked by this time, you've been around a while, you've worked with multiple people, or certainly you've seen it happen. Joining a Bible-believing church, well, I guess any church, joining, let's make it a Bible-believing church. Joining a Bible-believing church is a lot like getting married. You make a commitment. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where you get committed, uh, you come to church, you know, that's just like when you get married, you, uh, you get committed to the marriage. And in, in, in marriage, there's a honeymoon. And the honeymoon is, lasts for a period of time. It, it, go, it can go, every marriage is different. It can go six months, it can go a week, it can go a year. But, but, but my point is this, sooner or later, in any marriage, the honeymoon's over. And now you have to deal with the reality of things. You know, leaving the hair in the sink didn't bother you before, but now suddenly it's an irritation to you. Not even putting the toilet seat down now is an irritation to you. Not putting the cap back on the toothpaste is now an irritation to you. Little things now begin to, that when you were first married and the honeymoon was at its peak, <clears throat> those things didn't matter. In every Marriage, the honeymoon gets over sooner or later, and you have to deal with the reality. I'm not saying the marriage is bad. I'm just saying now the reality sits in of two people living together. And many times when people don't follow the principles of the Word of God, once the honeymoon is over and now you see that there are issues that before you didn't think about or didn't see or didn't care about, now suddenly you have to deal with them. And if two people aren't willing to work through that with the Word of God, you're going to have some problems. You know, it's the same way when you join a church. You come here and you, <clears throat> it's wonderful. Everybody's happy. We sing good songs. Everybody's fun. Everybody do a lot of fun things. And uh, you're going to say, well, I'm going to get discipled or I want to do this and I want to do that. And it starts out wonderful. But you know, it's the same way like marriage. Once you start to get into the Bible, the Holy Spirit of God is going to point out some things in your life just like you see some things in the marriage and you're going to have to deal with them. What I'm saying is this, just like in a marriage when a honeymoon is over, when you join a church after a short period of time, you have to face the real issues that you have to deal with. The honeymoon's over. Now you have to decide, am I going to fix what's wrong with me? I mean, I don't got the joy, joy, joy down in my heart like I used to and everybody was now. Now the Holy Spirit of God is pointing at things in my life that I know now I have to face and deal with and change. Now you have to decide where you're going to go with that. They're the same. It's, a, it's an incredible thing. Christianity, not only is there a complete lack of discipline, but there's a complete lack of commitment. And you're going to have to realize that when you get into a church, it's like when you get into any relationship, the honeymoon lasts for a period of time, but then you've got to come back down to earth and now you've got to pay bills, you've got to deal with this, you've got to deal with that, you've got to face this, you've got to face that, and if your commitment isn't strong, it's going to pull you apart. And in your Christian life, you can come to a church and be the happiest thing. Oh, this is a great church. Oh, everybody teach the Bible. Oh, they got a King's Age Bible. Oh, the great people, they're great. Yeah, right up to the point when the Holy Spirit of God starts to deal in your life and you've got to face some issues. The honeymoon's over. Now you've got to decide where you're going to go from here. And when this fails in Christianity, 
then verse 8 will and has, and I might add, will, will replace all that the Bible did for us. Verse 8 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy, vain deceit, traditions of men, the rudiments of the world. You get spoiled. Last week I showed you how God's people got wasted. This week I want to show you how you got spoiled. And with all the rudiments of the world that has come into Christianity, we see it most prominently in four areas today. And very quickly, because I want to get to the one that I want to talk about, very quickly, the first one we see it is, is in music. It's all back to the jungle, man. If anybody ever figured out that the first choir director in the Bible was Lucifer, you missed a great aspect of studying your Bible. He's always come against music. I mean, uh, music is one of the greatest studies you'll ever study in the Bible. If you want to study in the Old Testament, it all forms itself around a guy by the name of Asaph, who was David's chief musician. You ought to study his kind of music. The definitive passage on music in the New Testament will be Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. The definitive passage on music of how it relates to you will be 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 23. And when you come through the New Testament, just like in the Old Testament, you want to study it through Asaph. In the New Testament, you study it through the development of the church and the Word of God, and you find that there's five stages of the development and the devise of music in the New Testament. Just right there. One of our boys, Jared McClanahan, taught up at the, uh, uh, in Lincoln last time for their, for their thing up there. He was teaching on music. Kids need to know it today. And most churches, when you go to their music services, it's like a, a halftime presentation at the Super Bowl. It has nothing to do with God or the Bible or anything of those passages that I just listed. And they fail. The greatest failure is not understanding 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 23, what the design of music was for and what it will do for you or not do for you. Now, the second one will be no preaching of doctrine. And this will be on the rise of, we've talked about it many, many times, so I'm not going to spend a long time with it, the neo-evangelical crowd and the new orthodoxy crowd getting rid of the doctrine in the Bible. Now the third one, and this is where John chapter 2 comes in, <clears throat> is God's people going back to the world and doing all the things that the world did. Back <clears throat> in the 1920s, Billy Sunday was probably one of the greatest evangelists that the America has ever seen, if not in the world. He single-handedly brought in Prohibition, which was a, a, making alcohol illegal. And Prohibition lasted for a number of years before they got rid of it, but uh, uh, he, he preached on it and preached hard on it and uh, on, on the rise of alcohol and bootlegging and all the things that were going on that time and social drinking and the drinking of alcohol. Somewhere along the line, we have lost the lessons of history and now Christianity today thinks it's perfectly normal for, for God's people to consume alcohol, a social drink, uh, or the drinking of alcohol. Somewhere along the line, <clears throat> in Laodicea, going back to the world, we lost our separation um, to from the Word of God. And now there's no difference in Christianity. <clears throat> Just pick a church and go to it. There's no difference in the music. There's no difference in the preaching and the way that they conduct their lifestyles. I mean, I've had people that were, were out at one of the 
restaurants, you know, someplace, Applebee's or someplace, and a group of Christians were there, and they were drinking, and, and you know, and they were put on Facebook where they were stocking their shot glasses. I've seen pictures where pastors were holding up their beer uh, and saying, don't judge me. I mean, I've seen it to the place where they've said, we've got a group of people here, and they're going to Bible study, and the person says, oh, I'm not teaching tonight, so I can have a drink. You probably would teach better if you got half sloused. But that's just my opinion. We've seen a total and complete breakdown and collapse of any biblical doctrine of separation, sanctification, uh, by the saved uh, who are supposed to be set apart of the world. You know, in the book of 1 Corinthians, the church at Corinth was the most worldly church that you had ever seen. And it's, Paul deals with it. But in 1 Corinthians, you know, Paul, who writes to them in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, when he opens up, he reminds them, Now, he's going to deal with all their issues, but he reminds them before he ever gets into the issues. He says, the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ. First thing he reminds them, hey, boys, you're supposed to be set apart. There's supposed to be a difference between you and the world. Now, I bring up alcohol because when the Laodicean church wants to justify their action of social drinking or making alcohol consumption okay, they're going to go to John chapter 2. So if there's any place that needs a context for us today, it's John chapter 2. Now I'll tie this into everything that I've said to you this morning so far, but the standard teaching is, and I've seen pastors on the pulpit get up there and they talk about the fact that, uh, that it's okay to social drink. Uh, I, uh, one pastor got up and he said, uh, as long as, you know, there's three aspects to drinking. You have users, you have abusers, and you have alcoholics. And he says, as long as you stay as a user and don't ever come in to be an abuser or an alcoholic, you're okay. Now, to me, that has to be one of the most ridiculously stupid statements. All it shows me is, one, you know nothing about the Bible, and two, you've been held up in your ivory palace for so long you've never dealt with anybody. And in all the 50 some year, almost 50 years of my dealing with people, I never met an alcoholic who had lost his family, lost his health, lost his job, lost his car, who didn't think he was just a user. Human, you never give human nature that luxury. If I tell you it's okay to do this, you're going to take it to the nth degree. That's why you've got to have an absolute standard that doesn't let you fudge on it, man. But that's just where we're at today. Now, this will be the main place, as I said, you will go when Christianity wants to justify the drinking of alcohol. So let's lay it out. And you'll want to get this in your Bible. Next week, we're going to get into the doctrinal side of it, but I can't pass this up. I mean, this is something we're all faced with. When God's people lose their perspective, when they lose their position, when they lose their purpose, and they get into the laity, and then they start fearing everything else but what they should be fearing and God and His Word, this is what happens. Now, this will, first of all, this will be Jesus Christ's first public miracle that he does. I want you to know that. So you want to put that down there if you're taking notes. This is his first public miracle in the New Testament in the order of his appearance. And he comes to this wedding, and there is no wine. So he turns the water into wine. Now, you can see where we're going to have fun with this. 
Now, there's a lot of doctrine here, and we're going to get into it next week, but I want to make this passage clear as his uh, making this first supernatural still, so to speak. Now, let's get our material together. Verse 6 of chapter 2 says that there's six water pots of stone. And the Bible says also in verse 6 that they hold two or three firkins apiece. Now, the water pots here, just so you know, the water pots here are in connection with Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 and 19, Leviticus 16, 28, and Numbers 19 and 20 uh, with the purification uh, under the law by water. So just so you know that that's what they're for. I think it makes a reference to that in the passage. Now, there, I, I'll be honest, there are some disagreements among men today who know a lot about the Bible uh, between verse 7 and 8. And their disagreement is they're not sure on how much actually a firkin is. Some people say one firkin is seven and a half gallons. Some other guys say, well, one firkin is nine and a half gallons. Either way, when turned into booze, you have between 102 gallons and 153 gallons of hooch. If there were just kibitzing here, if there were 60 people at this wedding, every person here could drink eight to ten quarts of wine. Quite an open bar. Now, I must pause here and give you the standard joke. Southern Baptist preacher is driving down a highway and he's got wine in his thermos. And he's had a little bit too much to drink, but he's got it here and he's driving out and he takes a little deal here and he takes a little sip and he's kind of weaving over the road and a state highway patrolman, he goes by and sees him so he comes out and pulls behind him. Lights him up, guy pulls over, Southern Baptist preacher pulls over, the highway patrolman comes up and he says, uh, uh, everything okay? And he says, yes, sir, officer, just fine. And he can smell it, you know. And he says, uh, you've been drinking? He says, no, sir. He says, what do you got in the thermos? That's water. <laughs> Highway patrolman says, let me see it. He opens it up and smells it. He says, sir, that's wine. He looks up and he says, glory to God, he did it again. Now, this is a place in the Bible that most certainly needs a context. Several months ago, it was on a Sunday, I laid out from Deuteronomy chapter 32, probably the best I have ever done it and probably could never outdo it, uh, completely laying out through the Bible the aspect of, of wine and drinking in the Bible. It's on the website back there. I'm not sure where it is. I'm sure the guys could find it. But I told you that the definitive passage on wine in the Bible will be Deuteronomy chapter 32. So with that, we want to establish the context to see how it fits into John chapter 2. Because you need to know this because you're going to get hit with it. The next time you meet some of your social drinking Christians and they want to go back to John chapter 2, you need to have this in your pocket. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 32, you will find the two kinds of wine in the Bible that is laid out for you. You'll also find it in Hosea chapter 4, verse 11, where it calls them by name. You'll find one says wine, and the other one says new wine. When you get into Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 14, you'll find that new wine is always grape juice. It's the pure blood of the grape. You'll find it in 32, 14. You'll find it in Hosea chapter 4, verse 11. You'll find it again in Genesis chapter 40, verse 40. And most definitely in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 through 29, at the first 
Last Supper, he clearly tells you that it is grape juice. Then, also in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 32 through 33, you have the devil's brew. And this will be fermented. You'll find that again in Hosea chapter 4, verse 11. You'll find it in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 30. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 4. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 19. Now, in Deuteronomy 34, 12, it's called grape juice, new wine. It's called the pure blood of the grape. In chapter 32, verse 32, verse 33, the devil's wine is called the vine of Sodom. We all know what Sodom was. A poison and venom of asp. An asp is a snake. Bites you and it dies. And we now see that from Deuteronomy chapter 32 that the pure blood of the grape, grape juice, is a picture of Christ's blood. Hence, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29, when Jesus institute the Last Supper, which we take to be for our Lord's Supper or communion, he clearly says that you drink the pure uh, you drink the pure blood of the grape. You drink its grape juice, very clearly. Fruit of the vine. Now, what I'm about to give you is worth about $10 million. If you don't get anything else out of the Bible today or what I say, you go home with this. Here's how the Bible works. You've got to get this. This is the greatest single secret to unlocking the Bible, what I'm about to give you. This is how the Bible works. Once the Bible sets the context on something, this is why I always give you the definitive verses, don't I? Every time, I'll tell you. No matter if it's Sunday morning, Thursday night, Bible Institute, people ministry, I'm always telling you this is the definitive verse. The definitive verses will always set the context on anything. Then... Once you have the definitive verse on this is Deuteronomy chapter 32, then whenever you go, you will use the definitive passage to determine the context. Because God never violates his own principles. Example, Deuteronomy chapter 32, you have new wine, pure blood of the grape, fruit of the vine. Versus wine, which is the vine of Sodom and the venom of ash. Now, God will use the word wine interchangeably and be places where it's new wine, but he doesn't call it new wine. He just says wine. And somebody says, well, why would he do that? Because he already defined the context for you in Deuteronomy 32. Once I have Deuteronomy 32 defining it, wherever I read the word wine, I know that if it's in a bad connotation, that it, it's, never, it's never something that Christ did, and if it's a good connotation, then it's dealing with grape juice. The, the context is established by the definitive passage. That's how the Bible works in everything. Not just that. This is why it's so vital to get the definitive verses on it and know everything, every subject in the Bible where you can go to get the definitive because that's where you establish the context. And once God establishes it, he never deviates from it. So when I get into John chapter 2, well, let me finish this here, and then we'll come back to that. Now, he'll use the word wine interchangeably, just like he does in John chapter 2. He doesn't say new wine in John chapter 2. He says wine. Say, well, Bob, how do you know it's new wine? Because in Deuteronomy chapter 32, nitwit, 
He defined it. Stay with me. Uh, you're not a nitwit. You're just an idiot. Nitwit is worse than an idiot. And when you know the context, the context in the definitive passage will be the rule of law when it comes to your Bible. That's why it's the greatest secret unknown aspect of the Bible. Context and the definitive passages will be the rule of the day when it comes to your Bible and unlocking it. You know, please, God, don't leave it to me to do. Don't leave it to some Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine to do. God in his book has defined it for us. Follow the book. Follow the definition. Now, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 32 is where we start to see that the water here was not turned into the vine of Sodom. It couldn't have been. But rather, grape juice. Now, let me show you a little deeper in this thing. In Exodus chapter 7, verses 19 and 20, you have the first public ministry that Moses does. Public ministry. The first public thing that he does, I know he goes to Pharaoh before that, but publicly. The first public miracle in the Old Testament was Moses turning water to blood. The first public ministry in the New Testament was Christ turning water to wine, John chapter 2. You know why? Because new wine is a type of Christ's blood, Deuteronomy 32, 14, Numbers chapter 6, verse 3. So the first public ministry in the Old Testament with Moses is a type of Christ is turning water to blood and the first public ministry of Christ who is an extension of Moses was turning water to wine. Clearly showing you the connection between the two. Now you should know that. So mixing the blood of Christ. Here it comes. So mixing the blood of Christ with the devil's brew the poison of asps, scorpions, dragons is the most blasphemous thing that could ever be done. And there are churches today who when they do the Lord's Supper, they actually use fermented wine based on John chapter 2 and without any knowledge or understanding and in a ridiculous pit of depravity, they actually take the Lord's Supper, which is the most personal, holy, precious time between me and you and God, and then bring the devil's brew in to do it. How do you think God feels about that? Probably the same he feels about everybody making December 25th the birthday of Jesus Christ and celebrating it when it was really the birthday of Baal the sun god. Probably the same way. Probably feels the same way about Easter, Ashtar. God's people are the most screwed up people on the planet when it comes to understanding things about the Bible. You know why? No context, no perspective, uh, no, no, no position, and no purpose. No discipline in anything. And I'm telling you, where you stop to look for the context, you start to develop your heresy. And I know this is way too much Bible for some of you out there who want to do your own thing and be your own person. I get it. Now, for a child of God to take and digest that into his body, when the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, that your body is the temple of God, the Holy Ghost dwells inside you, 
and you drink the devil's hooch into your, into your body, which is God's temple, that's just the most blasphemous thing that you could do. The social drinking today in New Testament Christianity just shows how ignorant God's people are and how they could care less about the body of Christ, their body being God's temple. It's not about what you can do or what you can't do. It's not about your liberty in Christ. It's about your body is God's temple. You're not to defile that temple. And just as you would not go to a covenant of, maybe you would, go to a covenant of witches and hang out with them, but it's okay to take the devil's hooch and put it into God's temple. That's God's people in the Laodicean in church age for you. No context, no perception, no purpose, no position. Now, if Deuteronomy chapter 32 wasn't enough for us, as a defining chapter on wine and new wine, here is the real issue. Now, if Jesus at that wedding made enough booze to get 50 people drunk as a skunk, then he violated the Old Testament law in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 15 which clearly tells us, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth the bottle to his mouth. If Jesus turned that into fermented booze and then gave it them to drink, he violated the Old Testament law under Habakkuk 2, and he can't save anybody today. Because if you break the law at one point, you're what? You're guilty of it all. Now, there is not one place in the Bible that Christ ever violated his own principles. You cannot find one because that is the absolute for us is his principles. So you'll never find anywhere in the Bible where he ever violated his own principles. And if he did turn that water into wine, hooch, then as I said, he's a guilty sinner and he couldn't save anybody. There's not one place in the Bible where he ever tasted alcoholic wine or strong drink. Even though his murderous enemies, Matthew chapter 11, verse 9, called him a wine-bibber, which only goes to show you they lied about him just like they lie about you and me. Now again, in Mark chapter 15, verse 23, when he's on the cross, and again, I just keep bringing the Bible up. I'm sorry. You know what? We'll get back to just a Joel Osteen type of message next week. In Mark chapter 15, verse 23, they offer him, when he's on the cross, mirth. That's a painkiller mingled with wine. Now, it wasn't grape juice. That was the real deal. And you know what? He refused it. And he drank vinegar instead. John chapter 19, verse 30. Now, you, you need to know and understand that this wedding uh, and the wine from water, next week, I'm going to show you the doctrinal application to the water being turned into wine, and it is absolutely incredible based on the third day. But today I wanted to lay it out as it's used by apostate Christians who want to sin with the devil's vine and justify it that they're okay with God. Now, let me just say this. I don't care if you do or you don't. It doesn't, it doesn't change my world one way or the other. But as my people in my church, I have a mandate to teach you the truth and to give you the context and to lay it out as the Bible lays it out. You do with it what you want to do with it. But I'm telling you right now, it goes to show two things. In the Bible or in life, 
without a context to start with, you're in trouble. And I'll say it again. The lack of discipline to determine the context of any book, chapter, verse, or any issue in life will be the end of Bible truth and the beginning of heresy or bad teaching or a life of deception. And John chapter 2 was a great example of that. Second thing, how in God's people today you'll find a complete and total disregard for any (coughs) Bible scriptures, principles, guiding their life, um, helping them understand that their body is God's temple. Denying what the Bible says about the devil's vine and justifying what you want to do by just using the scriptures as you see fit to fit into your lifestyle. And I know, I know, I use John 2 to show you that that's about wine and social drinking because that was the issue and I wanted to deal with that. But I've expanded it before I ever got to there to tell you, brother, it goes into every aspect of our lives today. The book of Judges is a book that shows us in the Old Testament, but in a practical application, the Old Testament Jews and Judges going through the same things on one end of the cross as we are. And the great thing in the book of Judges, you find some of the goofiest, screwed up things you ever saw in your life in circumstances, people's lives, people's families, and everything that goes on. And you scratch your head and say, why is this? And you get to the end of the book, you find out why. It says that there was no king in Israel. And every man doing what's right in his own eyes. That's America today. That's American Christianity. That's churches today. They don't care what the book says. They don't, they don't care about getting a context. Uh, they don't care about anything. All they want to do is whatever pleases them, and then they want to use the Bible to justify it. In everything. I mean, we talked about John too, but before we get into that, I took plenty of time to lay out my lengthy introduction to say it's, it's in every aspect of our lives. When you forget and you lose your perspective and you lose your position and you lose your purpose, you're in an uphill battle the rest of your life and you'll never win. And we live in a Laodicean church period that we dumped the Bible a long time ago and all we want to do now is we want a comfortable Christianity where we can claim we love God but live like the world. We've lost the doctrine of sanctification. Now let me say this. Over the years, I've, I've had to referee problems with families, marriages, kids, between Christians. You know, somebody feels like so-and-so said something against them or hurt me or spoke against me or lied about me and they're all upset about it. Over the years, it's been my observation. You know, you sit down and you've got to kind of referee things out. And, and you know, if you feel like Solomon sometime. When those two harlots came into Solomon, one said, that's my baby. And the other said, no, it's mine. She killed hers and took mine. And he, he didn't know who they were. And Bible makes it clear that they were both harlots. So they don't have the best reputation in town of telling the truth. He didn't know who they were. So what he does, he just pulls out a sword. And he cuts the baby, says, cut the baby in half. Give her half and you take half. And we look at that and we think that was the dumbest thing that he could ever did. No, that was, that was a very smart thing he did because he knew that the real mother would never let her baby be cut in half. And the real mother pipes up and says, no, 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 don't do that. Give her the baby. And the other one says, cut it in half. I don't care. It wasn't her baby. My point being this, you know what brought the truth to the surface? A sword. 
When he pulled out the sword, it always brings forth the truth. And that Bible says that your word of God is your sharp two-edged sword and it will always produce the truth. So that's all I use. I don't know who's right and who's wrong. But here's something I found observing over the years. And this is worth, what was the other one worth? 100 million? 10 million? This is worth 20 million. Double the, double the ante. But my observation, and you ask yourself, who's really right and who's really wrong? And I've learned over the years that it's really determining right and wrong is never really what the issue was. But you have to get a context of the problem. And I've learned that in any given station, it's not who says what or who does, even does what. It doesn't matter what it is. If you want to know the real person that's wrong in any given strife, I don't care what it is, just like John 2. If you want to know who's really wrong in any given strife, it's simply the person who won't follow the biblical protocol and sit down and fix it. Somebody will say, well, you said this about me. So-and-so said me. Okay, let's sit down and find out. Get so-and-so. Never happened. You know why? was no so-and-so. You know, sitting down and laying it on the table and holding people accountable with the Bible, if you said this or you didn't say this, find out the context. What is the truth? Because the bottom line in Christianity is restoration. It's forgiveness. It's fixing things. And when you find people who have an axe to grind, but they won't sit down and fix it, here's where the problem is. I mean, it's just running out and shooting off your mouth off about, you know, whatever wrong or injustice you feel has happened to you. That's never going to fix it. Uh, you will not, but the bottom line is you won't apply what the Bible says and you won't do it to get it fixed. You have to establish a context of everything in your life. A context produces truth. And hear me now. Always be willing to take the issue, whatever it is, and sit down with whoever's involved and fix it because at the end of the day, Christianity is about peace. It's about long-suffering. It's about forgiveness. It's about restoration. And when you find somebody who won't do that, most generally they're the reason the problem was the first place. I mean, it's one thing to have the right Bible, but it'll never uh, be enough uh, if you don't do what it says. As Luke chapter 6, verse 46 says, Kelly, what does it say? Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? That's the problem. Christianity could solve 95% of its issues that have defeated it, if... God's people would just follow the Bible principles in solving its issues. And, you know, and like on Thursday night, people get upset sometimes because I'll, I'll get a little hard on them because they, don't, they, they should know better with the context. But that's, that's what it takes sometimes. And when somebody wants to complain about whatever in life, your job is to hold them accountable and say, hey, look, have you reached out to that person? Have you tried to fix that situation? And when they say no, then you ask why not. And you know, there is no answer to that. You can't say, well, I know what it would be. I know what they'd say. No, don't tell somebody what they would say till you sat down and they said it. Because you don't want to do it. You don't make up excuses why you don't do it. You do it. Why Facebook would go broke and out of business. In everything, John 2 is what we're looking at. 
And you got that. But I, I want to make it broader than that. In everything in your life, in your family, in issues that come up with people. Establishing a context of any issue will be the biblical way to produce the real truth. And once you have the truth, then it's just a matter of doing what's right and following it all the way to the end. Problem solved. So you can see, just following the Bible and using the establishing a context. Oh, I cannot tell you how important context is. I've told you up to this point how important it is in your learning your Bible. Now today you learn how important it is in, 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 in learning life. The John chapter 2 completely lays out and shows you the issues of social drinking for a Christian. Just going back and finding where the verse, where, where the subject is defined and then using that wherever you go because God, once he establishes it, he never violates it. He never changes it. He'll add to it, but he'll never take away from it. Now next week we'll look at this same passage and I'm going to show you the doctrinal side to this and this is pretty, 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 pretty amazing. And uh, it goes to show you how that every part of your Bible has a historical application. It actually happened, John 2. It has an inspirational application, how it applies to you and me. Go home and pour out your wine. And doctrinally, it shows you how this thing fits prophetically. And we'll look at it next week. What's really going on and how, again, we'll, we'll learn another piece of your Bible by establishing a doctrinal context. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll be dismissed.